It's the Loose Filter Podcast. Back with you are your host, Stuart Sims. And Anthony Campolo. Well, what I hope is a fun episode uh, for you this week. We're Talking calling about some of my favorite stuff. Yeah, this is this is uh, one of Anthony's episodes. Uh, we're calling it Organized Chaos, the Art and Craft of Metalcore. Metalcore. Yeah, and this, this is one of the topics that you need to be a... Uh, uh, see if you can hear the capital letters in my voice. Hip young person <laughs> to know about and be hip to, which is why I'm thankful that Anthony is a friend and a collaborator because it makes me hip to this stuff. So what are we listening to uh, this week? This is the band the Dillinger Escape Plan. And these were guys who were really seminal for me and for a lot of people who were into this scene back in the kind of late 90s, early 2000s. For me, it was around 2006 that I started getting into this stuff. And metalcore is the name, you know, is a combination of metal and hardcore. And we talked about hardcore in our history of punk part three. It was a progression of punk that was even heavier, more aggressive, and in your face. So metalcore is like that, but also even more heavy and extreme and kind of to the max. And in its a couple branches of its family tr- tree, of course, would be hard rock, heavy metal, in its iterations in the 70s and 80s. Yes, and, exactly. And and uh, then maybe we're also, so grandchildren, we're here at a grandchild of, of that and punk, maybe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so these guys were really influenced by a wide range of sounds and artists, and that's part of what I want to show with the songs I picked, is that the first one is going to be just what you expect, really, really loud, aggressive, technical, crazy but as the tracks go on, they start to incorporate a lot of other sounds and styles, like electronic. They even do something that's a little bit almost like a pop song. So that's kind of what I'm interested in, in bringing out with these song choices. So we should uh, prepare <laughs> listeners who maybe uh, don't know this uh, style of music or this this subgenre. That this is, uh, we were talking about before we turned on the microphones, and I asked if it was fair to describe it as... Uh, the analogy in my head was uh, maybe visual artists who are sculptors who work with metal, like iron and, and blowtorches and build big pieces that are outdoors, you know, and work in a warehouse in an industrial district or something. I feel like they're the musical equivalent of that because to me, and I said this not at all as uh, an insult or a criticism, that a lot of the sound palette to me that they're creating music with is noise. It's highly compressed sound. It's distortion. It's really intense. It's really loud. And that's uh, a part of the aesthetic in their expressive world, right? Am I getting this right? Well, yeah, no, you actually got it so right. It's a pretty amazing connection because in their second album, uh, Miss Machine, there's actually a track, an interlude track that is just sounds of giant machinery organized into into a track. So you're, you're completely right on that they're very influenced by industrial music. You have a lot of that uh, 90s nine-inch nails uh, seeping into some of this. Uh-huh, and the uh-huh. idea of noise that can be used in an artistic palette. So for me, uh, uh, outsider coming in, that is where a lot of people get knocked out. And we're making this episode. Your advocacy here is to get past maybe the initial aesthetic reaction of, hey, this is made out of noise. <laughs> it's supposed to be music because there is art, there's craft here, there's expressive, is is what you want us to hear through this this playlist. Absolutely. And acknowledging the fact that not everyone can make 
that instant deep transition. So it's really useful to have a band like this that already created some kind of transitionary work, I think, for people to find interest in more of the accessible stuff. And then that then can help them see the more extreme stuff, kind of where they're coming from, what they should be listening for, instead of trying to like throw them off the deep end right in the beginning. But that's kind of what we're doing with the tracks. So don't let the first one scare you off. That's the that's the baseline. Everything gets easier from there. <laughs> so, <laughs> the fire burns worse just at the beginning. Uh, we're to give everybody oriented, kind of on a timeline, like we always try to do. This starts sort of turn of the millennium. The first track we listen to 99, and we come up to uh, early aughts. 2013's last track. So that's kind of when. This is, uh, would you say when this, the style was sort of developed and honed and the activity really got going? Yeah, absolutely. Fan base got built and grown? Yeah, this was really, really popular when I was in high school, which would have been around 04 to 08. That's when you had tons and tons of kids. You had Warped Tour. You had the quote unquote scene music, like emo music. This kind of was a, a bit adjacent to that scene. There was a lot of overlap there between, between listeners. So this definitely had a, a pretty big heyday throughout the 2000s and is in a lot of ways an extension of what we talked about with the independent labels in the 80s and how they created uh, a system for a band like this to get a fan base and just do what they did for so long. And I did, in in reading about uh, the band, the particular band we're listening to, the Dillinger Escape Plan, they had absolutely from punk inherited like you the, the do-it-yourself ethos. Uh, and I read you the funny quote from one of the bands that... Uh, uh, is it's pretty R-rated, so we probably shouldn't read it on the uh, on the podcast. Bleep yourself. But yeah, they uh, they they didn't want to put any limits on their creativity, which I absolutely respect uh, uh, a million percent. You know, so let's dive right in. Let's, let's just shock everybody with the first track. All right, so this is from Calculating Infinity. This was a very very influential album because of how crafted the music was in terms of the precision the they use a lot of jazz influence they do a lot of stuff that just bands at the time hadn't done and they didn't know you could do in a metal band and this is the track called 43 percent burnt That's that's a good example of their really always always really forward moving type music. Like it's just has does something crazy and then it does the next thing. Then it does the next thing. It has this really, you know, nutty momentum to it. So I purposely avoided listening to any of their music, even though I knew we were playing this episode, because I wanted to listen to it. Yeah. Like uh-huh. I wanted reaction shots, audio reaction shots of me on this. I'm so what was uh I will say uh delightful <laughs> i think i was i was a, a giggling a little bit with uh how stream of consciousness it was mm-hmm. which absolutely has a lot of precedent stretching back 80 years before this track so they're firmly in a a, a modernist tradition with that i think but it the image that occurred to me was like if you had a really uh, uh high-powered hand drill going but it had mm-hmm. it had 
uh, cues of the track up to it because it was such an intense and focused energy that I felt was happening in these bursts, you know, and then it mm-hmm. like it was like then uh, changing the channel, you know, and and what I would call it, the academic side of me would call that like uh, Ivesian or something like that, that it, that you were or or or. Uh, it rings like, uh, you know, middle Stravinsky music where he would just put this music and then with no warning, you'd get different music. Yeah, there was a, a joke. I, I never really knew if this was true or not, that they would roll dice to pick their their time signatures from track to from like a uh, measure to measure. Yeah. And John Cage threw, you know, runes for the I Ching and like, you know, like, mm-hmm. like to get make decisions. So, yeah, there this is absolutely compositionally. They're coming from a place that uh, and and why wouldn't you as. Uh, as an American who, as Americans who grew up in the late 20th century, why wouldn't you make sounds that are industrial? That's so much a part. If you grew up in a city at all, right? Oh yeah. Uh, and they're in fact a very famous uh, Polish avant-garde, uh, post World War II avant-garde composer, uh, Kazistov Penderecki wrote a couple of pieces called the sounds of nature. And they were all like bowed metal and screeches and, you know, <laughs> the sounds of nature is one and two. Cause he lived in uh, a city and that's what he heard. Uh, so, so that was that was really funny. Actually, it was just really that was fun to me. Yeah, and that's great because that's what I always felt like listening to it is that it's it's manic, you know. And so some people, if they can get past the the aggression of it, you see that it's it's really playful actually in terms of what the music's doing because it's almost like a dance of how crazy can we make this without it falling apart. The other thing it makes me think of is a story about how. Uh, uh, Jeff Emmerich and and George Martin got the chaos of the calliope sound for the benefit of Mr. Kite. You know, cut the tape up and threw it up and then taped it together. Oh yeah, yeah. Randomly, that's I feel like they recorded like six tracks and then and then randomly spliced bits of it together. Anyway, okay. So what's our next track? So what happened after this album is they lost their lead singer. This is actually a a pretty common thing throughout the course of the band. They have uh, a lineup that shifts entirely around the guitar player. So Ben Weinman is he's the the musical mastermind uh, behind the whole thing. So he's the one who writes all the music and has stayed consistent throughout the band. But what happens after the first singer leaves, uh, Dimitri, is really cool because they just do an EP with Mike Patton. So Mike Patton is fairly well known for Faith No More and for um, Mr. Bungle, a lot of different bands and, and projects he's done. And his voice is... He thinks of it like uh, an extended instrument. He he does the screaming and the growls and all that stuff, but on top of that, he he considers himself a singer. So they realize the potential they can achieve with an actual singer who can work on the same level they can, instead of someone who's just kind of screaming. And this track is When Good Dogs Do Bad Things to, from 2002. Mm-hmm. I'm the best they created that EP was the the band recorded all of the music and then just gave it to Mike Patton and Mike Patton listened to it and was like hmm, you know this needs here some 
lip <laughs> bubbling sounds. <laughs> well, and Mike Patton, I wrote down a note that we we'll need to include it. There's he he would be a big part of an episode we need to do on on experimental rock. Oh yeah, mm-hmm. uh, uh, an artist you know, and and that that track uh, showed his influence and showed uh, influences on Mike Patton, even like John Zorn. It was. Uh, a little more of a fully realized sound palette from the first track, I thought. Like there were, and it, it made sense right when the track was over that you mentioned how it was made because what struck me was in the first track, in terms of the production, like the the sound palette, uh, it was all unified. All the sounds were sort of compressed and existing in the same space, so to speak. Uh-huh. And in this one, the band sounded uh, in that really tight, dry, uh, compressed kind of aesthetic, but the 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 singer's voice was in much more resonant and distorted and yeah, different kind of sound cut, space. Yeah, you cut know, through a lot space. more. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so it makes sure it makes sense that it was done separately. But I like the way the result, the holistic result, is that I think it it does grow their sound palette. Yeah, and you could tell that this had a big effect on what they were thinking about in terms of who their next singer was going to be because this was just a, a one time project. And then they did something that at the time was actually pretty pretty cool. They put out an open cast for anyone to come and audition. And so a bunch of people sent them videos of them singing. And there was uh, one guy who sent them a recording of himself doing their first uh, track from their first album, singing it like the original singer did. And then he sent them another version where he did it in the style he would have done it himself. So this is Greg Pucciato. And they really liked what he did. That's a super compelling way to audition. Yeah, right? Isn't that really smart? Like, I'm technically proficient in this style. Let me show you by, you know, doing a recording you did. And then let me show you my artistry, my creativity as a performer. Wow. Yeah. And what's cool is he ended up staying with the band until the end. So even though he came in in this, like, weird kind of, like, you know, competition type setting he instantly blended with the band and they were like this is the dude (laughs) like they never had to had to look for anyone else ever again so what's cool with this track so he's singing on the next track exactly so this is their first album with greg it's called miss machine released in 2004 and this was the album that i really really fell in love with and it has a great track that i think is probably the one of their most accessible that we're going to listen to called Setting Fire to Sleeping Giants. First off, let me say you look so tired Rest your head and shut your eyes Empty ambition Blankets the sky Think about another world Okay, my reaction shot. <laughs> reaction. Uh, that is, it's more, I get why that was what grabbed you when you and first turned you onto the band. It's more coherent as a song in terms of like form and, and like as a track, mm-hmm, yeah. right? There's like a verse and chorus kind of structure, but also aesthetically it's got, you know, it, it kind of stays in one sound world. But what I notice is even more distinctively different than that is though the bass is foregrounded, the drummer, there's a groove, there's a beat. 
it's not these uh, stuttery, drum machine-y, glitchy aesthetic. You know, the really rapid fire uh, drumming that I was hearing before. It still has the intensity. It What it made me think of as a former, uh, you know, band director, high school band director, is those Kevlar drum heads on marching snares, right? Oh, yeah. It's like a, mm-hmm. almost a rifle shot on the backbeat. But uh, uh, but also that this one had a groove. And then my, my other reaction is that their punk roots were really showing on this one. Yeah, uh-huh. it's a little alternative rock kind of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's like I could see it being in a John Waters movie, you know? Exactly. And what you're talking about with the with the groove in the drums, I totally agree. They had elements of that in their in their first album where they would go into kind of jazzier type sections. But um, as this goes on, the next album in particular, it really focuses in on the, the groove of the drums and the, the changing time signatures and, and polyrhythms, because that's one of the things that they're really good at. I also like the addition of the Hammond organ kind of keyboard sound in there. I don't know what, but it's not it's not a Hammond sound, but it's like the '80s synth kind of version of that that was in punk music. Yeah, they started bringing in a lot of outside sounds and instrumentation to start to fill it out. There's there's other tracks on here that have a lot of uh, Trent Reznor, Nine Inch Nails influence, which I had mentioned earlier. This album is probably where it comes in the the heaviest. And then with their next album, Ireworks, this is where they really go very electric with a couple tracks. Okay, and then the previous was 04, now we're to 2007. Yeah, 2007. So um, I'm going to play two tracks from this album. This first one is their greatest level of success, probably, because they got to play it on In terms of uh, audience and visibility uh and so on. Yeah, this was kind of like the single from the album, and it was pretty awesome because they got to play it on you know on national television. Conan, this was Network Conan. Yeah, Network Conan. And and these guys were the most insane live band you would ever see. They, they toned it down a lot for their, their live <laughs> show, for their, their network debut, but I saw them live twice, and it's seriously the craziest thing I've ever seen a band do. Well, and that's real breakthrough for a subculture like this who's, uh, like, you know, like we mentioned at the top of the episode, the aesthetic is uh, kind of narrowly targeted, you know? Yeah, it's, it's incredibly unaccessible and has always appealed to just a, a small niche of, of listeners. Right, and of course that takes us back to our whole thing for our our, our listen here is that uh, more more people should maybe give this a listen. So tell me what this black bubblegum. Yeah, black bubblegum. This is just their most fun track, definitely. takes me back yeah that's a terrific track man uh it it i can't shake the sense at this point 
21st century skate punk. That's what my, as an eighties kid, that's what my brain keeps, <laughs> keeps going to, especially the bass, man. It was so like violent, fimsy. It was just like boing, 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 Super boing, trouble. boing, boing. Yeah. 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 I noticed that the drummer's sound palette expanded. He was using a lot more toms, a lot it's more. also a new drummer, actually. Oh, new. Oh, well, then, yeah. uh, well, then there you go. <laughs> Yeah, so this different, was um yeah. different sound palette. So that's why I say the the band slowly morphs <laughs> around <laughs> Ben as the albums go right, on. Right. So this is now we have the same singer stuck on, but a new drummer, and this is kind of the core that starts to really develop their full sound. I do notice that as a guitarist, his harmonic language is evolving to match the styles. Yeah, he's continuing to go more into a classic chord progressions type sound and. It's, it's worth saying as well that all these albums have all the other extreme tracks around them. I'm just kind of picking these out to show when they reached for right. more, you know, when they tried to, well, yeah, tried yeah. to grow and stretch from their foundations. Yeah, yeah, but this album also has some really cool work with electronics. So we're going to play a little track called uh, When Acting as a Wave. That's a really interesting track too. The electronic manipulations of the te- of the texture, the sound world that it most pinged for me is Aphex Twin. Yes, that was definitely what I would always think. Warp, that the real warp glitchy, sound. the warp sound, the yeah. square pusher Aphex Twin that they originated. The real glitchy manipulation of a whole texture where it like makes it sound liquidy, you know, and then uh-huh. messes with it. Uh, I also got pings of uh, Frank Zappa. Oh, yeah. A little bit in there in the I'm not sure where it was. I think it was the contrast between the really uh, uh, gritty industrial main guitar sound and then the real twangy far off kind of meow, 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 that thing going on. Yeah. Yeah. They have a little bit of that, like something super chaotic with something kind of like almost goofy going yeah, on. Yeah. Well. I think that's why it sort of made that association in my brain. Yeah. And that makes me think of Mr. Bungle, which makes me think of Frank Zappa. And, and the other that clicks my other association is just uh, minimalism and and just having kind of a pattern that you set up. And specifically, if you want to go real deep, deep cut here, another thing it pinged in my brain is a piece from, I think, 91 or 92 called Yo Shakespeare by Michael Gordon who's part of the Bang on a Can collective. Yeah, that track is interesting. It does a similar thing where they'll kind of drop beats on like a rhythm. So you'll think they're setting up a pattern and then they'll drop one and then start the next pattern. Um, so that's something I, I noticed in this track you're about to play that Dillinger does a lot. So you can see why these guys would have been really influential on the sound because with, with each of these albums, what they're really doing is they're kind of throwing down the gauntlet of how far they can push the sound. So when everyone else who was making this kind of music was listening to them, they were really inspired to kind of reach out to get other sounds and other styles and have more of a sense of history in what they were doing. You would hear this with a band like uh, Between the Buried and Me really ran with this uh, starting around this time with Colors. So if you're interested in any of that, I definitely recommend check them out. We're going to listen to one final track, that I think does a good job of showing how they 
uh, were able to summarize all of their sounds and kind of put them together and create their own distinctive Dillinger-esque sound that they used for their last three albums. This is from 2013, Nothing's Funny. at that point they really just had a cool unique sound that they had developed over over the first couple albums and it's great that they were able to stay at the top of their game for so long they put out six albums and then decided to to call it quits they're like we want to just do this as great as we can for as long as we can and then they they went their separate ways yeah that last track really shows that uh like it or not that they are a band who absolutely continued to evolve their sound palette. Uh, I mean, compositionally, creatively. They never fell into a rut. They never got lazy. Structurally. Yeah, that last track, Nothing's Funny, really had, like, the bass line, it was, like, Primus, like some real 90s associations. Yeah, it, has, it was really groovy, really, like, head-bobbing, yeah, really yeah. fun stuff. And I do like through all of these tracks, and I don't mean to keep, you know, just because it's new to me, and sometimes the best way to first talk about music that's new to you is to knock it to other music you know, uh, connect it to other music that you know. But uh, uh, I do love the way that they synthesize these influences, but also that uh, there is their own through line there. There is a creative through line, I think, through all the tracks that uh, we listen to from them. Yeah, Ben did a really good job of having a, a strong artistic voice and just a really clear vision for the bands the, the whole time. It, they always felt like with each album, they, they knew exactly where they were going with it, that they, they weren't just kind of like experimenting and trying new things to mm-hmm, try new mm-hmm. things. They were like, okay, we went in the studio, we figured out how we could take ourselves to the next level, and, and here's what we did. And if I had to put my finger on it, that through line, the compositional voice is that it's always no matter how the sound evolved around it, it's guitar-driven music, like you said right at the outset. Uh-huh, yep. Whatever's happening in the guitar, <laughs> that's what's driving the thing. Yeah, and that's so great because rock has gotten very boring in the last 10 years, I think, and <laughs> these, I think there are a lot of Send bands like this. Send your hate mail to loosefilter at gmail.com. Yeah, so I think this is a great example of artists who really showed that you could still make interesting, original, forward-thinking guitar music. Fantastic. Yeah, good pick. All right. And so, like I said, these guys have six albums that are chock full of awesome stuff. If you liked what you heard here, you should definitely dig a little deeper into it. And this is The Dillinger Escape Plan. You've been listening to the Loose Filter Podcast. You can find us online at www.loosefilter.com or on SoundCloud at soundcloud.com slash loosefilter. Drop us a line if you got any feedback at loosefilter at gmail.com we'll be back next week with a new episode thanks for listening see you later